0: Episode
1: one. I think that's why this podcast is so interesting because it really, it's about much more than just transportation. It's about land use and placemaking as well. And I've always been really fascinated in how those ingredients all come together.
0: Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Katie. And you're listening to Urban Speak, created by the team at Urban Systems.
2: We're speaking with fellow urbanites about the creative and innovative ways our practice areas collaborate to better serve vibrant communities.
0: We all know we have a special language here, so it's time to let the world in on it. Our hope is that after each episode, you're able to walk through the connections across urban's long hallways. I think we'll just dig in if that's, if everyone's sure. feeling good about that. Yep, sure. So for this first episode, when we were brainstorming topics to think about transportation, initially came up and then we were thinking, well, transportation is so hand in hand with urban design and how we work with, with clients. In particular this year, the world has changed in ways that we didn't anticipate and we've all had to adapt our normal routines from the way we move, but also the way we interact with the urban environment. And so. It, We came to transportation and urban design as these two topics that we could we could wrestle with uh, together on this first podcast and for this COVID reason, but also because we've seen this in our streets as well, represented right with the um, accommodating and, and rethinking our streets for walking and biking and rolling in physically distant manners. So we wanted to talk about that and it aligned really well because of the work that folks in our office have done uh, with the Federation of uh, Canadian Municipalities and the uh, Street Rebalancing Guide that that came out earlier this summer. Uh, We have this in-house knowledge and expertise around that area that's helping municipalities at a local and, and national and international stage, and we wanted to feature that. But we also understand that transportation doesn't just, or the street doesn't just end at either curb. It's not just the pavement in between, the street really is the volume that the street takes up and that includes the urban design design pieces and so We thought, what better way than invite uh, Brian Patterson and Leighton Ginther to talk about these two practice areas and start with the Street Rebalancing Guide, but talk about how those measures that are outlined or the strategies that are outlined in the guide can continue to inform our approach and and dialogue and discussions with, with clients as we think about the future of streets as well. Brian is a transportation planner and an active modes enthusiast based out of Urban Systems Vancouver office. And Layton Ginther is a urban designer and a humid-centered design guru. Uh, <laughs> and he's based out of the Calgary office. So we thought that we would just jump in and maybe ask uh, Layton to start um, around how you would describe your role at Urban beyond what we've just mentioned. Um, if you were, you were speaking to a niece or nephew at a barbecue, what would that, well, what would that look like?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I would say is, um, yeah, I've been, I've, I'm a functioning urban designer. I've been working with the company probably for almost 23 years. Uh, started in Kelowna before moving to Calgary. Um, and I would describe my role as uh, working with, working with local governments, with cities and communities and towns, uh, indigenous communities as well as land developers to uh, take their ideas and their aspirations and sort of translate that into physical space. That would be sort of how I would describe uh, the role that I play. And uh, that that role plays out at a variety of scales, whether that's on a site scale or even a street basis, a neighborhood, uh, or even a community-wide scale.
0: Thanks. Uh, And Brian.
1: I'm a community planner at Urban Systems, and uh, really my focus and my passion is creating active and healthy communities, uh, getting people to kind of reimagine their streets and cities uh, to be outdoor, active, and healthy and engaged with their communities. Um, so, a lot of the work I do is kind of specific to transportation, but I think that's why this podcast is so interesting, because it really, it's about much more than just transportation, it's about land use and placemaking as well, and I've always been really fascinated in how those ingredients all come together uh, as to how we can get people to you know, engage in their cities and streets and, uh, more actively and be more, more vibrant. Yeah, that's always been kind of a passion of mine uh, since I started this type of work about 15 years ago. Uh, and actually, uh, back when I was doing my planning degree, I did my thesis on the interaction between kind of land use and urban design and transportation and public health. So that's always kind of been a keen interest of mine that I've tried to kind of uh, foster uh, through my career here at Urban.
2: Awesome. So, Brian, we've, you've heard us mention the FCM Street Rebalancing Guide. Would you mind explaining exactly what it is and where the initiative came from?
1: maybe to start I'll kind of explain what street balancing is and what we kind of mean by that term and un- unpack that a little bit. So you know traditionally in most cities in North America streets have been designed primarily for vehicles, for cars, uh, and kind of focusing on throughput and movement of cars and really our focus beyond the pandemic is focusing more on people and how do we, how do we move people and looking beyond just vehicles, looking at how do we get uh, people using transit and walking and cycling, and looking at alternatives to to vehicle travel. And so as part of that, we apply a lens to all of our projects, looking at uh, complete streets, which is really how do we kind of create streets that consider the needs of all road users, not just vehicles, but also people walking, cycling and transit. And in many cases, because streets over the past you know, 50 years and beyond have been designed for vehicles, it really means we need to rethink how our streets are designed and reallocate or rebalance the amount of space that's given to different users. So, in many cases, that means uh, kind of repurposing uh, maybe a, a motor vehicle lane or a parking lane, uh, for example, to provide space for uh, people cycling or mo- widened sidewalks for people walking, transit priority lanes, and things like that. So that's kind of what we mean by street rebalancing in general, and um, this notion really uh, came to the fore with the COVID nineteen pandemic a few months ago, as you know, I'm sure we all experienced in our communities a really disruptive and sudden kind of transformation as to how we move throughout our cities, and really in mid March, uh, and the data shows this it, all around the world, really almost overnight there was just a plummet in the amount of uh, travel people were doing as people needed to kind of suddenly uh, stay home and work from home and minimize their travel travel patterns declined by about 80 percent almost overnight so really just an unprecedented disruptive change which was really exciting in many ways uh, because we saw people i know the street i live in it had never been more active and vibrant and people were out walking and cycling in the street there were very few cars Uh, And it was really just an interesting moment to just think about how our streets could be different and how our cities could be different and how we could use that space differently. We also, at the same time as kind of people's travel patterns were changing, we also saw this need, of course, for physically distancing and to provide opportunities for people to be active, especially, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, that need for recreation kind of nearby our homes Uh, in particular, as we didn't want to be traveling much. So it was this need for, you know, making sure we can still stay active and really prioritizing active transportation and recreation as a really important need. So all of this was happening, of course, super quickly in these early days of the pandemic in March and April. And there were a lot of cities in Europe and South America and elsewhere who were making some big moves to kind of rebalance their streets and Uh, make pretty bold investments in active transportation to enable physically distant, uh, safe recreation. And And you started to see a number of examples pop up around Canada and the US. And what we were hearing from the communities we work with is there was kind of an interest in doing something, but there was very little guidance. The world was changing so fast, best practices were popping up everywhere, and communities didn't really know what to do, what they should be doing, or where to look for guidance. And so we had worked uh, and collaborated with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, FCM, in the past. And so I actually reached out to FCM and kind of said, this is what I'm hearing from some of the communities we're working with. They, they, They need to do something, but they don't know what to do and they don't know how to do it. As an organization that kind of advocates for and represents municipalities, what are you hearing? Are you hearing similar things? Is this something you'd be interested in exploring further? And They kind of said they're they're hearing similar concerns and interests from municipalities all over the country. And they kind of agreed there's a great opportunity here to provide some guidance rapidly (laughs) based on what we've kind of seen happening over the previous month or so internationally and elsewhere. And just provide something that can be a a toolkit for municipalities to explore the conversation about uh, whether they should consider street rebalancing, when to think about it, and then how to do that if they were interested in doing so.
2: What impact do you think that the FCM guide will have on the communities that it's being implemented in? And have you seen examples of its guidance being implemented already?
1: Yeah, and I think it's kind of an evolution. You know, the the guide was based on kind of a snapshot in time in the spring of 2020, it was published back in June. We developed the guide based on what we were seeing already happening in communities around the world. And we're trying to kind of bring best practices in uh, based on what was happening at the time. And so we kind of have those best practices in the guide. And yeah, we have certainly seen a lot of communities use this um, since then, uh, both to, I think kind of the audience for the guide is twofold. It's both for decision leaders uh, and to help kind of make the case uh, to decision leaders about why they should consider street rebalancing. And so I think it's been very useful in that regard to really have something that, you know, senior staff or politicians can see and kind of see there's examples of other cities who have been doing this elsewhere and to say, yeah, this is something we should be doing. It's been useful, uh, secondly, uh, to provide more detailed guidance for people who would actually implement some of these measures, the engineering staff or public works staff, uh, to provide kind of practical guidance. And certainly a number of cities uh, we've been working with uh, in the lower mainland here, Metro Vancouver, have been using a lot of the tools we've been talking about in the design guide, Uh, City of Vancouver, City of New Westminster, City of North Vancouver are three local examples of cities that have been really following a lot of the principles in the design guide in terms of kind of low cost, tactical urbanism type approaches to to doing this. And yeah, we've seen some some pretty, pretty great changes in the region here in Metro Vancouver. And I think ultimately it recognizes that politics are a big factor. And whether it's in Vancouver and looking at the Stanley Park example, Um, Another example, uh, in Ontario, the region of Waterloo implemented uh, a pretty extensive network of kind of COVID street rebalancing, and they've actually, in response to some community pushback and political pushback, have removed some of those. So, and and there's a number of communities that's not unique to to Waterloo. So I think it's, it's recognizing that this is ultimately political at the end of the day, and there's some tough decisions that need to be made, both for the short term and the longer term. Some of these measures, I mean, let's be honest, maybe the intent is to make it easier for people to be active and to promote active transportation. But again, going back to what I was saying at the outset in making difficult choices and trade-offs, sometimes that might come at the expense or perceived expense of people's travel time or availability on street parking. And those can be difficult for politicians when sometimes those are the loudest voices.
0: A question around that, Brian, you've highlighted these points around the politics of of implementing um, these measures and and that pushback can happen. But I wonder if there's been, since the the guide has been implemented and some of these rapid response strategies have been implemented and kind of moving into that recovery phase that, that, that the guide talks about as well, have there been specific monitoring measures that have been successful in case making for these temporary solutions to, to maybe become more long term?
1: Great question. And I think that's that's super important to, especially, you know, to help make the case for why this is important to show how successful it is and actually have data as opposed to maybe some anecdotal information or that some users might have. And, Uh, One example, so the city of Vancouver uh, has been measuring their cycling volumes on Beach Avenue, which is one of the streets they repurposed. I think they found in July, uh, there was one day when they had, I think, almost 13,000 people cycling using Beach Avenue. That's what you would normally see on a fairly like major roadway for vehicles like a collector or arterial roadway often gets 10 or 15,000 vehicles per day so to see that and they saw that on several days in July like 10,000 plus cyclists every day using it that's pretty compelling evidence that this is effective and important so I think it's yeah having having data is really important for decision makers for sure so that we're not basing it on feelings or perceptions or anecdotes but actually what is happening on the ground. And maybe another piece I wanted to kind of highlight on this as well is uh, kind of making the case and the reason why we're doing this. And it's not just about kind of nice to haves with active transportation. We're in a global pandemic here. This is coming from very real health and safety uh, perspectives here. And. In British Columbia, we we're really excited to see that after the guide was published, this is actually something that has been used by our provincial government. Our, the BC Centers for Disease Control has created a web page for municipalities and basically saying this is something, from a health perspective, we recommend municipalities should be doing. This is important, and so having that health lens uh, and kind of health imperative for doing this, uh, I think is is really important. This is something that we need to be doing to make sure that people can stay active during this pandemic, which is going to be with us for a long time.
2: So the next question you've already touched on about why street rebalancing is important, especially now, playing off Jen's question, do you see this guide becoming more ingrained in permanent changes in in the future for cities? Or do you think that most cities are taking this more as a temporary measure, a band-aid for what's going on right now?
1: Yeah, great question. I think we're kind of at a, a bit of a juncture right now. A lot of communities, especially kind of in March and April, were putting down uh, what we call in the guide rapid response. So a lot of just really temporary measures, just putting traffic cones out on the street to really, really quickly create space. And that was great. And that kind of showed what's possible. But what we're seeing now with increasing numbers, at least in British Columbia of COVID-19, I mean, we now have our highest Ever a number of active cases of COVID 19 and a pretty rapid increase. And it, it's different in different jurisdictions. Manitoba has a similar upward trend right now as well. And I think we can expect over the next year, two years, whatever that timeline might be, hopefully not that long, there's going to be ebbs and flows. And I think it speaks to the fact that we need to prepare for that and we need to be resilient. So this isn't just a nice to have over the summer, having more patios for people to to you know linger outside and this is something that we actually need to be planning for over the long term with more kind of robust resilient infrastructure and I think we're starting to see a number of cities think about that and think about more durable permanent types of infrastructure things that can be maintained and that'll last throughout the winter this is something we need to have as a year-round transportation choice providing options for businesses restaurants so people can still find ways to to eat outside in the winter i'm not sure what that looks like in much of canada or even vancouver in the november rain it'll be interesting uh but you know how do we make sure our restaurants are still vibrant and having those options so this is i think it just speaks to the fact this is going to be with us for a long time and we we
3: need to be planning for the long term here Um, i think another piece of this brian is the is sort of the tactical urbanism approach, where you know, and, and you would have you would have been active doing this on some of your projects, really piloting opportunities. And and it's very challenging for uh, residents in the communities that we live and work, in to imagine what some of these changes might entail. And and until you've actually experienced it, and until you've seen a road closure, until you've seen a, a bike lane replace a, a previous uh, vehicular lane it's very hard for people to contemplate the impacts or maybe the lack thereof. And so I think, you know, this has been an unprecedented opportunity to test some ideas that uh, have been considered before, but just, you know, maybe challenging to implement. And there's been a willingness, you know, whether, whether conscious or not from the public to, to actually test some of these ideas and try them out, which I think to your point, Brian, I think we're finding that people are adapting and uh, finding new routes if they're driving and you know an example here in Calgary that Jen would be familiar with is Memorial Drive where you know it's one it's right along our river Uh, there's a a river path that's heavily used but even that pathway is not enough to accommodate the kinds of volumes of of people that have been using the facility since COVID and so they've closed two lanes of Memorial Drive uh, to accommodate that and I think if you would have tried that at another point during the year uh in a in a typical year you would have had a lot of pushback i mean there would have been uh, a lot of outcry about impacts to commuter traffic but given given covid and given the health concerns this has allowed us to test it and you can just see how much uh, people are embracing those kinds of opportunities and so i think it uh, I think we'll be able to, we'll be able to use this data as Brian's mentioned to have further conversation about opportunities to reevaluate how our streets function and the purposes that they serve I'm glad you brought up tactical urbanism so for those of you who might not know that's a
1: term that's kind of describing uh, really kind of rapid implementation doing things quickly uh, more light and cheaper so how do you do things really really quickly and a lot of uh, tactical urbanism this is a great example of where transportation and urban design intersect can be to create maybe a a pop-up bike lane for mobility but we've seen in Vancouver here some great examples of urban design and placemaking yeah right outside our office here where the city has put out, you know, street furniture to help businesses and get people outside, but they've really, uh, activated those public spaces, higher uh, engaging local artists to paint the street and murals, um, and really just creating some great vibrant public spaces. And I think, again, it speaks to what Leighton, you were saying about giving people an opportunity to experience something and, As I kind of said at the outset, that's I think the opportunity here is for people to reimagine their cities and streets, and this is giving people these kind of tangible experiences to think about maybe how we should be planning our cities uh, in the future. I think one of the challenges too with tactical urbanism, and a lot of cities have experienced this, is people kind of say, well, what about in communication or consultation? And because we're doing this in a pandemic, like a lot of cities are moving very, very quickly and not using the kind of typical process that we would use to engage with the public but by doing tactical urbanism this is in fact what that consultation is you're giving people that experience to try it and if it doesn't work you know some cities as I mentioned maybe they're removing it ideally maybe cities are adapting and modifying it to you know if it's not working quite well how do we tweak it and, and try and make it better for everybody but I think that's just kind of the exciting piece is giving that people the opportunity not just to talk about it or think about it theoretically it's like Let's actually do it and try it and adapt and use the actual tactical urbanism as the engagement itself.
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good point, Brian. Just just building off that as well, the the notion of engagement. Like, uh, really hope that you know, through these experiences, we can find other ways to collect data and collect feedback on you know sort of people's experiences. I think that would that would kind of close the loop, so to speak. Um, you know, recognizing that everyone's adapting as they need to. Uh, through the process. But being able to collect feedback on how these are functioning, I think, just continues to build uh, credibility and trust and evidence that we're all in this together trying to figure out how best, how best to shape our cities. And, and we actually have that opportunity. And so I think finding ways to, uh, to engage um, will be critical you know, as, we, as we continue to assess the opportunities themselves.
0: I think a beautiful example of the conversation we're just having is is in the guide. And it's, um, I, I don't have the page number, but it's a two pictures showing, I think it's in, in New Zealand where uh, there's an intersection that this rapid response or this tactical urbanism approach has been taken where there's uh, cones uh, placed along the intersection through the evolution of the pandemic and moving towards more of a a recovery stage, the temporary bollards were put in place and some uh, some street murals. Mm. And so this way of evolving our idea of public space as well, and, and this mix between transportation and urban design and how that intersection now has a placemaking feature uh, as well for people to understand or, or recall that intersection as the place where, where, um, where the that, that, that pavement is painted or those bollards are or where they feel safe where they didn't before. And these are all elements that, that come into to play when, when we're having a discussion or a dialogue between active transportation and, and urban designs.
3: One of the things that I would say, just taking a bit of a step back on, from a design perspective, is when, you, when, when I think of urban design, and we'd probably all come up with different definitions if we, you know, if we were asked the question, uh, but when I think of urban design, I think of sort of relationships, relationships between all the components that, uh, when put together, make up cities. And so those are, you know, things from just like buildings to streets to uh, natural areas and water courses, Um, and and so these things all come together and as urban designers I think it's our responsibility to try to understand how to stitch them together and how they uh, speak to each other how they relate to each other for the benefit of the broader community and so when I think of uh, how urban design might relate to sort of rebalancing and specifically streets I and, and Brian alluded to this right off the bat you know, I like to think of streets as some of our most important public spaces that that exist within any community. But we don't often we don't often think of them that way. We think of them primarily as movement corridors, which they for sure are, and they need to continue to be. But they're also they're also places where people socialize and people meet and gather. They're places they're places that support business. Uh, they're places that allow people to recreate and to uh, to to sort of build stronger communities. And so. Streets are so important and um, I think uh, from a design perspective, how we allocate space within that street is is so important and it really should speak to our priorities as a society, priorities as a community in terms of what we're really trying to achieve. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is particularly important is the relationship between the street and adjacent development and how those two interrelate Um, you know we've been part of projects we've all seen projects uh, and seen streets that might have all the components of a great street but don't have the built form that relates to that street or is connected to that street uh, in a suitable way where you might have a building separated and have parking out front and there's really no relationship to what happens inside the building to what happens on the street and so some of those pieces are Critically important in uh, seeing streets be be successful, be, be places where people want to spend time, uh, where they're vibrant and active and safe, uh, and and so um, a real uh, solid relationship between the built form and the public space and the public realm is is critical. And when there's a disconnect, you can lose a lot of the strength and a lot of the significance of that corridor. And we can all think of examples.
0: So I, I mean something that. The language that you used that I, I thought was interesting was uh, how urban design is a, a mix of elements in, that make up our cities, mm-hmm. and that when they're stitched together in the right mix, it works. Right. And rebalancing the street is one of those stitching, one of those pieces to stitch together. So I'm wondering if you, the, the, in thinking about the, these two topics, if there were specific examples that you've, you've come across where... Um, certain elements in a a certain area of a a municipality or a place you visited have have been stitched together in just the right way.
3: Yeah I was I was thinking about this and and, uh, we we can probably all think of streets that that we've really enjoyed spending time in and um, and it would be interesting sort of to reflect on what we think about when we think about those streets and what are those factors that lend themselves to a successful street. But I was thinking of some examples, you know, trying to think of some examples uh, where I've been more locally. And uh, a street that I would think of here in Calgary would be 10th Street, uh, just on the north side of the river. And it's a street, whether it's been repurposed, hasn't been repurposed formally because of COVID, but it has been repurposed over its lifespan as you know sort of as the community has evolved as redevelopment has occurred on 10th street uh, for those of you who don't know it's a it's just outside the downtown it's across the river from the downtown it's a fairly major uh, urban corridor lots of mixed use with commercial on the ground floor lots of sort of interesting retail sort of boutique retail and then now we're finally starting to see some residential some mixed use some residential above and some intensification taking place and it's become one of what I would say, you know, in Calgary, one of, one of the best uh, sort of shopping streets that we have. And I think what makes it a unique street and, and how it's been repurposed is, uh, it still functions as a commuter route, but there's recognition that if you're driving through that corridor, you're not driving at speed or high speed, you're, you're driving through a neighborhood and you're seeing people, lots of people uh, on the sidewalks. The sidewalks are wide. Uh, buildings have been set back in some cases um, that allows for some outdoor plaza space, some patio space, some socializing uh, space, informal and formal. Um, and I think it's just a, it's a great example of people being drawn to spend time in a corridor. Uh, and it's, it's not just a point A, point B corridor. It's functioning much more broadly than that and it serves a much more significant purpose. Within the neighborhood, but also within the city, and so I think it's a good example where you still have on-street parking, you still move vehicles, bikes are encouraged to go around 10th Street. Uh, there are some bike lanes that uh, that do run on 10th Street, uh, just a little bit further north of the, the the blocks that I'm talking about. But I think you'd you'd probably feel somewhat comfortable uh, as a cyclist biking through this area, just given. Uh, the traffic speeds are so low and you would feel like you're part of the the functionality of the corridor so that's a that's a corridor that i would say locally is a good example of a street that functions really well uh, is thoughtful about how to balance that need for moving vehicles transit uh, bikes uh, while accommodating people and really creating a place for people to spend time another place that i would think about is one of my favorite downtowns uh, in British Columbia is is Baker Street in Nelson. Uh, Nelson, BC, beautiful community in the Kootenays. I would say there's a lot of similar characteristics uh, of of Baker Street and yet it's a, it's a completely different scale than obviously what we have here in Calgary. Um, but it's it's a very active corridor. I remember being there years ago when they were just starting to talk about patios and replacing parking stalls with patios and having some of those Difficult conversations in some cases where merchants disappointed About losing a parking that could be out front of their store or within close proximity to their store But then recognizing I think as demonstrated That the level of activity that something like a patio brings and the character and the and the quality and the ambiance that that benefits everybody along the corridor and that it becomes um, an entire place that that attracts people rather than individual stores um, that attract people and so it it becomes a destination becomes the heart and soul of the community Uh, it's got lots of character building form great scale great architecture uh, similar story with outdoor spaces that line the street and so it's just a place you go to see people and a place you go to experience the community and to really understand who the community is and so i think that's the potential that exists when we're thinking about streets and how streets relate to private space beyond, beyond the right-of-way.
0: Brian, are there any examples that, um, building off of, of Layton's uh, 10th Street in, in Calgary and, then, and Baker Street in Nelson, are there uh, examples where you've seen those elements stitched together in a way where rebalancing and, and corridors have worked really well with, with the urban design fabric?
1: Probably one of my favorite examples that comes to mind, in, at least in North America, is in Halifax uh, on Argyle Street, which is uh, right in their, their downtown core. And Argyle Street is really the, the heart of their entertainment district. It's where all the restaurants are, and the bars, there's a convention center on the street. So really the focal point for activity and entertainment in the city. And it has was previously really just your kind of typical downtown street with two lanes of traffic. Fairly narrow sidewalk, so kind of difficult for uh, spilling out into the street, um, with you know uh, patio seating and such. And so, a few years ago, they uh, redesigned it with permanent infrastructure. So this, this isn't tactical urbanism, and following a kind of model called a, a shared street which essentially means everybody has equal priority and right of way on the street, and it's designed as such. So it's designed for very, very slow vehicle movement where essentially the vehicles would be going at the same speed as people walking. And people walking have just as much right to kind of walk within the typical roadway as vehicles. Uh, So it creates this really kind of nice, dynamic, slow speed environment uh, where everything is also at the same grade. There's no curbs. uh, So the sidewalk is at the same level as the street. They use like beautiful textured brick pavers, actually using an argyle pattern in the street to kind of put some public art into the streetscape. And by doing so, this has allowed uh, restaurants to have larger patios to spill out into the street, they during the, during the day, vehicles can still use the street, so traveling at slow speeds, but probably more importantly, that allows for other needs of the streets and, and businesses, so parking and loading is still accommodated as needed. And then I think in the evenings and on the weekends, they close it down so it's only just for pedestrians and cyclists. So it's a bit of a flexible street as well, uh, depending on the time of day, uh, but really is kind of a, a nice example to me of just how you... Uh, kind of give everybody, all street users, just equal priority over that space. Uh, And there's a few other examples of similar shared streets uh, in North America. Stephen Avenue Mall in Calgary is another one. But yeah, that's probably the the, uh, nicest example that comes to mind for me. In terms of COVID street rebalancing, one of the best examples I've seen is uh, in the city of North Vancouver, where I live, on Lonsdale Avenue. So Lonsdale, it's a a major arterial road, uh, six lanes of traffic, four lanes of of through traffic and parking on both sides. So a very wide street, but it's also the the primary commercial street throughout the city. And in the past, it hasn't always been the best experience uh, because the sidewalks are a little bit narrow and busy and you have a lot of traffic. It's a major transit route. It's a truck route. uh, So there's a lot happening on Lonsdale. Uh, But the city made the decision as part of its street rebalancing um, to uh, remove two vehicle lanes to provide wider sidewalks and patio space. You know, it's come again with trade-offs going through that stretch of Lonsdale in your, if you're in a vehicle, maybe it's a little bit slower, but people have adapted. Some people use a parallel street instead, or ideally they're choosing to walk. Like I do now. I I walk down there much more than I would have before because it's a more pleasant street. And so they, they took away two vehicle lanes, but they made sure that they kept the on-street parking there. So that was kind of how they managed the trade-offs. On-street parking is still really critical for businesses there. So they made sure they kept that space uh, and then uh, yeah, created these wider sidewalks and they really used tactical urbanism. So some really fun things where they've put in, you know, bright, colorful umbrellas, Adirondack chairs and like AstroTurf. And they've also, I think, created a process where businesses can kind of come up with their own patio installation. So it gives them flexibility. So each business is kind of now moving into the street in different ways, which kind of creates Different types of experiences uh, as you move along the corridor. So I'm sure there's other examples across Canada, but that one just because it, it's a few blocks from where I live, and I use it all the time now, and it's my favorite place to go now, just to go and grab a, a coffee, uh, support local businesses, and just go and hang out uh, on the astroturf in the middle of what used to be a roadway. It's it's just kind of a fun experience. I don't know. There's something about sitting in the road when you're not at the sidewalk level. You're I don't know it's it's only you know a few inches further down but it's just it's it's a different experience.
3: I I think it's a really good point like you know you mentioned sort of the flexibility and the adaptability of space I think that will become you know something uh, you know that will be front of mind going forward that we need to find ways for our streets to to function in multiple ways and the sort of the construction design techniques that you talked about no curb you know everything the same surface you can you can hold a festival there you can shut the street down you can you know expand patios you can do all these different things I think that's also something that we'll continue to see more of going forward especially in in key sort of urban commercial areas within our communities.
0: A question I, I have and I think we've touched on it a little bit so far is uh, when we were discussing um, tactical urbanism and how to involve the community in these conversations and that tactical urbanism is this way of involving uh, community voices in a real experiential tangible way and i'm curious about how or if there are other ways that we can tell the story um, and help facilitate the everyday person in understanding the the, the importance of of good urban design and, and rebalancing streets and and curious about what that looks like at, um, across the scale of clients that we work with, from the, the large municipalities to those uh, maybe smaller scale clients as well, and, and where we see those conversations happening at different, at different points. So it's a bit of a, a, I think, a triple question there, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, curious to hear both your thoughts, and, and maybe I'll toss it over to Layton first to, to dive in
3: sure yeah i think from a design perspective i really think that everyone owns design like we we all have the ability to contribute it it really shouldn't be well i'll talk about the role of designer second but i think we all have a perspective on what functions well and what opportunities might exist and i think going back to the example of if if you're to ask anybody what's a street that they've been to you know similar to our discussion today what's a what's a memorable street that they've been to and describe why it's memorable. Uh, you know, you might you might hear things related to um, you know sort of comfort and character and kind of quality and experience. But chances are you won't hear things like width of sidewalk or you won't hear there was lighting in the trees or that that you felt safe uh, because things were highly visible. Like translating the more the you know. I'm not sure the aspirations or the the understanding of how a street works I think is is the role of the designer is to help is to help people understand when they talk about being comfortable to further explore that with them and really help them understand so what what is it that makes you feel comfortable versus uncomfortable and what is it that makes you feel safe versus unsafe in certain situations and and I think when, when we can speak their language and have very open conversations with people about what they hope to achieve, whether they're a business owner, whether they're a resident uh, along a corridor, I think I think it's, it's paramount that we really seek to understand what their perspective is and where they're coming from with their comments because there can be a lot of, as we all would have experienced, there can be a lot of emotion uh, in these discussions because we're talking about Sometimes business livelihood uh, or and, and parking is often at the center of that discussion, as Brian's already alluded to um, and so being able to, to get past some of the emotion to to really understand what's at core what's the core of what some of those concerns might be or what some of those issues might be I think is is really the the task of the designer or the, the engineer on the project is to really try to to dig a little bit deeper and find out what's key and and I think we have to be open like we have to be can't be coming in with a preconceived solution that we're trying to kind of uh, dictate um, I think I think where we see the most success is when we work alongside our clients and the residents and the business owners that we're working with uh, to in in an honest and and um, with integrity where we actually believe that we're going to get better feedback better direction that's going to ultimately result in a better outcome for everyone involved and so being very open about that uh, is critical and and so I, I'm just thinking back to an example that uh, both Jen and I worked on where we worked with the local community here um, and we and we set up sort of setup up shop on the streets that we were contemplating uh, we're, we're working with the community to explore sort of the repurposing of four different downtown corridors and corridors that were largely designed to carry traffic and we were the community we're working with really trying to explore are there other opportunities can these corridors function in other ways to contribute to the character of our community which is so important to us and so by being active and engaged and on the street in those locations along those corridors uh, and having the, the ability to talk to people and listen, and also to share our own ideas, I think was really successful for us in in better understanding what uh, what what might be appropriate, and you know to challenge conventional thinking, to play devil's advocate in a respectful way, uh, but at the same time, always looking for solutions that that can be implemented um, going forward.
1: Maybe I'll add a few, build on that and add a few thoughts. You mentioned Leighton the kind of need for open, honest dialogue and I think that's really critical. There's been some I think perceptions with some of the street rebalancing in a number of communities that maybe some cities are trying to advance a particular agenda and being opportunistic here and and, and that's not healthy. I think we need to be careful about that and making sure that we are doing this for the right reasons and that we are um hearing from the public about what they want and and what their needs are, including businesses uh, and recognizing their livelihood and how we can support them and also the public. And I think when you frame this question, you uh, mentioned the word conversation as opposed to consultation. And a little bit earlier I was talking about consultation, how tactical urbanism can be actually a a tool for for consultation, but I think conversation is a really important word and to think about it that way. And as Leighton was saying, this needs to be an opus, open and honest two-way dialogue. And we have as much to learn from the public and how they're using these spaces and, uh, and to help inform uh, you know future designs, how we can adapt things to make them work better uh, to meet their, their needs. And again, I think that's where monitoring comes in. Uh, monitoring, oftentimes we think about I mentioned earlier, you know, the bicycle counts on Beach Avenue or traffic counts, but sometimes it's not always quantitative. It can be qualitative as well. And observing how people are using some of these public spaces and maybe they're choosing to you know sit on one side of the street and not the other why is that maybe there's more Sun on one side of the street and it's more enjoyable Uh, looking at maybe some of the intangibles and getting people's perceptions about what's working for them what are their suggested improvements and how can we learn from the people who are actually using this space to design better public spaces and really make sure that is a uh, that two-way conversation and being again open about that, and, and really making sure we're wanting to learn from each other.
2: What elements of this conversation are we maybe missing? Are there other discipline perspectives to include moving forward? Um, what what can what can we include that will make this more of a complete picture?
3: Yeah, I would I would say I mean uh, maybe a couple pieces in my mind that that link to you know the conversation we're talking about today. I'd say the land economics piece the. The fact that uh, there, there is a market side, uh, there's a market component to any, any corridor and understanding, understanding how that market currently functions and how it could function, what the potential is to support uh, other activities, other uses uh, is really important. I know, I know our land economics team is heavily engaged in thinking about corridors, um, uh, examples in Edmonton, um, Calgary and elsewhere, Come to mind where they've been actively engaged in helping uh, think through that connection uh, because the market will play a a pretty significant role uh, in terms of seeing streets repurposed and rebalanced i think the other element is also just just the improvement costs themselves and so when, when we do talk about sort of permanent forms of improvements that that relate to infrastructure might be above ground infrastructure might be below ground infrastructure there's a cost associated that with, with those kinds of improvements and understanding who pays for what is, is often a, a big conversation. Is this a benefit that, that the whole community realizes or is this a benefit that uh, particular merchants or business owners or residents along a block or two uh, realize? And how do we share that? How do we value that as a community? And then how do we actually make improvements uh, that are financially viable for us. Um, and this goes right back to you know, Brian's earlier comments about prioritization and improvements that align with uh, our aspirations as a community. And uh, so there are trade-offs. Another key word I think that I would take from this discussion and is how do, we, how do we sort of assess the trade-offs um, with, with sort of repurposing and rebalancing and how does that align with what we're trying to achieve as a, a broader community? I think
1: a, a really important piece I'd like to highlight, whether it's missing, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's certainly not as uh, at the forefront of the conversation, uh, is equity. Building on you know what we all saw through the pandemic with the Black Lives Matter movement across North America and the world and, and knowing that We have these uh, issues of systemic racism and inequalities and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has, if anything, simply exacerbated those inequalities. Uh, We need to put that very much at the forefront of our decision-making, not just for street rebalancing, but for everything we do uh, as we uh, plan and design cities. But when it comes to street rebalancing, uh, I think that's just a, a critical consideration, and we we touch on it uh, in the FCM guide and making sure that's one of the, the key guiding principles, uh, and that everything we do at the at, at, as a foundation has an equity lens to it, and making sure we're not uh, you know perpetuating those uh, social inequalities or exacerbating them, and that we're really considering the needs of. Of everybody, and whether it's uh, people of color or seniors or children or people with uh, disabilities, we really need to make sure we're considering uh, everybody's needs uh, at the out front, uh, outside of the process. And, um, you know, it's a challenging topic and it's uh, absolutely critical for everything we do. And some cities have certainly started to take that into their decision making process. I know a number of cities have chosen where they are doing their street balancing based on equity looking at where there might be a higher proportion of uh, people of color or low income uh, people uh, who uh, are probably still frontline workers at grocery stores or otherwise and making sure that people who live in those areas have access to safe, equitable, uh, active transportation options or public transit. But we haven't seen many cities do that yet. I think a lot of cities have done street rebalancing and have had kind of corridors and projects in mind, which is great. But I think we need to challenge ourselves to really think about why we're doing this and where we're looking at street rebalancing first and foremost from an equity lens.
2: That's a fantastic perspective to add to this conversation. Jen, is there anything that
0: you would like to add? No, I, I it's more just a thought that's come to mind and and one of the principles of of urban design that's come across my plate before um, that I think relates to to both both what Leighton and Brian have have spoken to during our conversation and in particular around this equity piece and the the principle that was um, stated to me was if you're designing a a shelter, it best be a shelter for the people who live on the street or live on that street. Um, And so it's kind of the idea of thinking about who, why are we doing this project and for, for who mm. and where. Um, and I think that really kind of brings those two pieces together, that urban design piece and this and this rebalancing equity piece that you've, you've mentioned, Brian.
3: Yeah, just, just sort of building on that, we just finished a project in Lethbridge uh, regarding mobility and accessibility. Uh, it's a master plan for the city. And... Uh, we, we work directly with people that face mobility challenges of all kinds, whether they have vision loss or whether they have physical uh, mobility challenges. And uh, it, it was definitely a game changer to be able to work directly with, with individuals that are challenged moving around the city. And this is not unique to Lethbridge, uh, but, but when you get the opportunity to understand and hear their stories of what life's like, you, you definitely recognize that we've got a long ways to go to improve uh, sort of the, the the functionality of our cities to allow everyone, regardless of mobility, uh, to be able to to move through and enjoy enjoy the community and and so just hearing those stories uh, uh, and hearing hearing sort of the impact that those stories had on even our client and their their staff team uh, and just how motivated uh, they were to try to make change because you could see that it would have a tangible a tangible impact on people's livelihood and on their quality of life. And so, um, yeah, just a great, you know, a great opportunity. And it's, it's something that I think we need to continue to, um, continue to advance. And and we've given the kind of work that we do, given the kind of roles that we play, uh, we've got a tremendous opportunity to move the dial in a significant way in that regard.
2: Definitely. And I think that's a fantastic way to kind of round out our conversation and, tie everything together i would like to say thank you to both of you for participating in this conversation Um, it's been a great learning experience we're very thankful for your patience as we sort this out and and kind of get this initiative off the ground Um, we had a couple closing questions that we had written and um i think the one that we were planning I'm going with and correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, but in your guys' opinion, what is a game changing trait of a good consultant? And if you guys would like to speak a little bit on that, um, whoever wants to go first. I,
3: I, can, I can start just in case Brian's uh, got the same one. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I would say, I'm not sure if it's a game changing trait or if it's just foundational in my mind, but I think being being a very good listener and uh, someone that really desires to, to hear from our clients and hear, hear from the people we work with, um, I think is critical. I know uh, there's often a temptation for us to jump in with our own perspective uh, from the start because we've done, you know, we've worked across uh, many locations, across provinces, we've, we've got ideas. Um, that 's often why our clients come to us is because they know that we're we 're capable, but I think um, it's so important for us to listen and to really seek to understand and uh, seek to understand sort of the perspectives that people have uh, the issues that they 're grappling with, and really to explore deeply you know what what 's at the core of those issues so that we can actually help them you know help them address some of those challenges that they 're experiencing so I think being quick to quick to listen um, is a is a great trait of a, a solid consultant.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's a great one. Uh, that wasn't the one I was going to use, but I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, you know, often as consultants, our role is to come in as uh, and I'm using air quotes the expert. Uh, but certainly, you know, any community we work in, we need to. It's a partnership with uh, the communities in which we're working and our clients, and we need to really have a strong understanding of what their needs are and developing, you know, context sensitive solutions uh, based on what we're hearing from our clients and communities. Um, So that's a good example. The one I was gonna pick was, uh, as a trait would be adaptive. And I think that's become super clear over the past six months. Um, You know, even this idea of COVID street rebalancing, I mean, this didn't exist a year ago. So it was, Finding ways to understand what the changing needs of our clients and communities are, and it probably goes back to listening and uh, being responsive to our clients' needs as well, and adapting and learning how we can help them through changing circumstances.
2: Fantastic! Thank you again for you for participating in our conversation, and
0: greatly appreciate having your perspectives. Thank you both for just jumping into the waters with us. It's been it's been fun and such a good conversation. There's always so much to learn from people that you've sat down with before, but I love hearing the different examples that came out of the
1: conversation. That was awesome. That was fun. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Lots of fun. Totally. It was super fun. I didn't know how it
1: would go because, you know, with Leighton and I, we hadn't like touched base on these. So I was like, how is it going to work as a conversation? What's Leighton going to say? But no, I thought it worked. It was great.
0: You've been listening to Urban Speak, created by the team at Urban Systems. If you have thoughts on the topic we discussed this episode,
2: or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please connect with either Katie or Jen. Our doors are always open.